So this has been a, a really difficult passage for me to prepare to preach on. Um, I have reread this sermon so many times because one thing that we really believe in in our church is, uh, is what we like to call expository preaching, which is that you don't preach things unless it's in the text. You want to take the text and break it down. And as I wrote this sermon, I just felt like there are things going on in our culture and amongst us that I felt like were really important to address. Um, and so I spent the whole week editing and editing, trying to edit those out uh, because I didn't want to talk about them. Uh, but it just felt like they're related to the passage. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that um, and pray before we open. And then I wanted to tell you that if you have any struggles with anything that I say, that again, my name is Ben Milner. And my email address can be found right here. It's just ben at salemprezws.org. And you can send all of your thoughts on this sermon to me at Ben Milner. Um, let me pray. Lord God, I pray that as we examine a tough text that convicts so much of the idols of our country, our people, that we would not be judges of others, but that we would instead look at our own hearts and the ways that we're broken from you. And I pray that you would come to us like the angel in Joshua when Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And the angel just says, no, I'm with the Lord's army. And I just pray that that's where we would find ourselves, that we would be seeking after no side, but that we would instead uh, be on your side. Amen. So we're in our third week of studying the book of James, and it's been reiterated to you throughout that James in the wrong hands is a, is a dangerous book. You can really beat people up with James, which is part of what I've really struggled with this week. If you, if you handle it wrong, you can just chastise people. Um, like I said, this has been a difficult sermon for me to, to write. I've wrestled with a lot of uh, how it spotlights my own sin and, and uh, how I'm wrestling with things. And, and I just fear that my severity towards myself would come out towards you all. So just any, any severity you would ever detect in this, just hear that as my own conviction that I'm talking to myself. Um, I do think that this passage calls out some really tough things that we're pretty acquiescent to in American culture and have been for generations. Um, that's not true for all of you. In fact, I was thinking of some of you this week just thinking this sermon just doesn't apply to a number of people who I know in this church. But I hope for most of us that it will find conviction in our hearts uh, that will lead us to greater liberty in Christ because that's, that's why we're here. Uh, Ricky Gervais, who's the creator of The Office, once said that the American Office character Michael Scott, if you don't know a Michael Scott, then you probably are Michael Scott. And I think a similar thing could be said about James. Uh, if you don't feel convicted by James, then you might not see that James is speaking to you. Uh, so we're going to dance a difficult dance tonight in reading James as wisdom without preaching moralism. Um, it's easy to read James and apply it to the lives of others. Uh, and that, that's not what li wisdom literature is meant to do. Wisdom literature is supposed to be a, a sieve through which we pour ourselves and, and when we pour ourselves through James, the pure spirit flows through and then left in our hands should be the junk that we want to take before Christ. And that, that's what we're going to do when we look at this.
passage tonight. I actually love the book of James because it's the first book of the Bible that I ever studied. Uh, In 2001, I had just moved to Boulder, Colorado for college, and I joined a Bible study with three guys named Boyd and Neil and Andrew, and Boyd would drive us up Baseline Road in Boulder into the Flatiron Mountains, and we would ascend 2,000 feet in just a few miles. And uh, we'd hop out of Boyd's station wagon, and we'd do a short hike to a spot that we called Upside Down Rock. It's this huge boulder that sort of angles down the slope of the mountain, and you can lay backwards on it and look upside down at the world where the sky is the bottom and the earth is, is the uh, atmosphere. It's, it's really cool. I had just become a Christian two months earlier when I joined this Bible study, and I was in, just enamored at that point in my life with the loving goodness of God the Father. And I was living in the town of Boulder, which is a place that is not opposed to Christianity. It just assumes that it's extinct. Uh, and, and so the combination of no Christian culture and this naive sense of God's love made it possible for me to read James as it was intended, which is a beautiful vision of how we might thrive not as a harsh school marm. And I hope that we can together capture that magic as we read James 2. James done wrong can read like a bunch of bossy imperatives. You know, you better not make distinctions or you better not oppress people. And uh, we want to resist that when we come into this week in, week out. And, and, and what we want to especially resist is, is this classic Christian thing which is to uh, have an inner monologue during your sermon where you say, man, I hope that so-and-so is here because that jerk really needs to hear this sermon (laughs) instead of applying it to our own lives. So we must read James uh, as wisdom literature, and we have to read it with the intended tone, which is care. James is not yelling at us. He's diagnosing our hearts in love. Verse 1 starts with brothers and sisters. And verse 5 says, listen, my beloved. So James downright will sift us. And if we read it with that same tone that you read, Jesus says, come, drink the cool living water, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light, then you will get something out of this book. James is the loving letter that's written to separate our holy and beautiful parts from our rough and dirty patches. And I want to pour us through James 2. And my hypothesis is that when, uh, when we pour ourselves through James 2, it's going to leave three forms of brokenness in our hands. Striving, consuming, and limited generosity. So striving. When you read verses 1 through 4, you come across a scenario where someone shows favoritism. They pay attention to someone with a gold ring and bright clothing I was at a dinner party last night. I actually was. This is not like a stand-up comedian. Where I was like, I was at the bus yesterday. I was actually at a dinner party last night, and I just thought of this passage when I was there thinking, no one here is wearing a vibrant purple robe, and no one is wearing uh, large gold rings. And so how do we apply a passage like this when we read something like that? It's easy to just abstract it and think we understand it, but not really think that we live like this. None of us is casting out vagabonds to get access to nobles. That's not our culture. It's, uh, it's tempting to read verses 1 and one through 4 as about shaming the poor to kiss up to the rich. Uh, when John Calvin wrote about this passage, he said that, it seemed a little tricky to apply because we all know that we're socially required to show courtesy to the nobility. 
But that, that commentary doesn't apply to us because we, live in an, we don't live in an honor-shame culture like Calvin or like the original context of James. We live in a culture where at my alma mater, the University of Colorado, a young woman spilled her frozen yogurt on Barack Obama when he was, a, when he was president, and she laughed. <laughs> and, and we live in a culture where at that same university, people make giant puppets exaggerating the likeness of Donald Trump. We, we don't live in an honor-shame culture where we look up to people and we want to strive towards them. We, we mock those who are, who are higher than us. Instead, we live in a striving for upward mobility culture. The American form of favoritism is to chase social recognition, to get progress in our social capital, to have proximity to the popular and to equate that with success. That's how you apply James to our culture. So here's an example from my own life uh, to flesh this out for you. I attended a grad school at a place that loves striving. And there I had met a few people who were either related to or were themselves well-known academics. And uh, some of these people happened to also be quite a bit taller than me. And they were standing together at an end-of-year picnic that our dean had thrown. And so I walked over to them because I knew one of them, kind of. And I tried to sort of gently sidle my way into their circle and, you know, laughing along with them. And, uh, and uh, alas, I failed because with the height differential, they were unable to see me and kind of closed me out. And then I just had to sort of walk away in shame. And uh, I think that's a pretty good picture of what striving looks like in our culture and what drives us towards situations like that. Uh, that, I think, is, is, is a key part of being an American, is to have some sort of social striving. Uh, we might be so used to it, though, that uh, we might be so used to looking for self-benefiting relationships and friendships and things like church or work that we might even be blind to the fact that we're striving after and actually passing over lots of relationships around us. Um, it's, it's like if you walk with bad shoes long enough, it's going to deform your foot, and you're not even going to know that you have a deformed foot. If you strive after certain relationships, you are probably ignoring others around you who God has given you to be in relationship with. That's not true of all of us, but I think that's something that in our culture we have to reckon with. Uh, you might even develop a habit of thinking that you're being left out, when in reality, you could just be showing favoritism. There's just people that you want to be around, and, you, and you, there's other people that you don't want to be around, and you're... You're interpreting that as being left out. James is not chastising people for this favoritism. The reason he's pointing it out and the reason that I'm bringing this up with us is, is that it harms the people who are separated, who are favoritismed out, if you will. But it also harms us because it deforms us. It makes us not like Christ, which is just not a good way to live. James is, is love, lovingly identifying this, this deformation in us. He's saying, brothers and sisters, you're blind to your own unhealth. So maybe you're not a striver. Maybe that resonates with some of you. I think striving is what verses 1 through 4 is about. But I think there's a deeper thing that almost all of us can, uh, can resonate with, which is consumerism. Remember as we go into this section that James is speaking with an affectionate tone. He's saying, listen, my beloved, 
as he opens the next paragraph. So keep reading him in this gentle tone, okay? He starts by probing our human tendency towards favoritism, saying brothers and sisters, and now he's saying, listen, my beloved, you have this human tendency towards avarice. Avarice is a word that I really like. I think it's such a better description of the American condition than, than greed, because greed's easy to project on other people. Rare is the American who stockpiles wealth in gaudy and unapologetic ways, which is how we see greed. That's greed. It's some sort of person literally sitting, a pile of, sitting on top of a pile of cash with, with all of their gold rings and bottles of champagne. Middle class people can't be greedy is what we like to tell ourselves. But avarice means to be greedy or to lust for material gain. And that, that's what James is is kind of hinting at here. I think most of us would say we despise greed. But that's not the American sin that's harming the poor. It's not greed. It's, it's actually rampant avarice. This denying how our consumption culture is causing our society to decay. According to research by Northwestern Mutual, 7 out of 10 Americans identify as middle class. But according to Pew Research, less than 50% of Americans are middle class, and we've all probably heard that that number is shrinking. For Americans, the wealth and privilege class is often whatever group is above us socioeconomically. That's, that's who we think of. Who, who are the privileged in our society? It's whoever's right above me. That's the American way of thinking. And that's how we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're not the people in verses 5 through 7. Most Americans are not barons who are stealing money from the poor or palpably crushing the impoverished. We have a more subtle form of this dynamic, which is how many of us are addicted to consumption in ways that perpetuate poverty. I live in that, big time. This passage was really hard for me because it convicted so much of that in my life. A number of journalists and intellectuals have pondered how our society has moved from one of creation. We don't make things anymore. We consume things. That's the posture of why we make a living. We don't make things. We make a living so that we can consume things. And in our privilege, we don't major in generosity as patrons for art and innovation and mercy. We buy stuff. We just buy stuff and buy stuff and buy stuff. A friend of mine who's a financial advisor says that American spending is like gas in a bucket. Our spending always expands to the size of the bucket. And that has been completely true in my own life. Our culture encourages me to daydream about getting a new hat or hat. Hats are hard for me. I love hats. And my wife will tell you I have a lot of hats. It's partially related to the baldness. But our culture says, that's okay, man. You're bald. Collect hats. Get a new lamp. You deserve a new vacuum, a new watch, a new blanket. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. She makes most of her own clothes. And she posts them on Instagram. And I thanked her because she is such a prophet in my Instagram feed. Because most of the people I follow on Instagram are posting things that they bought or I can buy. Let me say that again. Most of the people I follow on Instagram are posting things that they bought or I can buy. And my friend who makes things is just the exception. 
I can't believe how many Instagram accounts, like celebrity Instagram accounts there are for people who just have rooms. Just pictures of their stuff. A celebration of some arrangement of lamps and rugs and chairs and plants. And I am complicit in this culture. It's, it's almost impossible to resist it in our society. Stuff looks good. It's well designed. It's beautiful. And we want it. We just want to look at things on Amazon or J. Crew or West Elm or Article or Apple or Patagonia. I don't know what the other ones are, but I feel like those ones resonate in this community. And our consumption is just never ending. Most of us can't even see the parameters to stop the gas of spending from expanding to the size of our bucket or beyond. Because we look at others in our culture and we see that they have more. And we assume, well, they must be the ones that James 2 is talking about. We miss how much we have. I love beautiful things, and I believe that God wants us to possess them and to make them. But our consumption is destructive in our culture, and it's rampant. It's an epidemic. It's an epidemic of the American soul as the opioid crisis is destructive and rampant for American bodies. And until we take our striving and our consumption that seriously, we're going to continue to be depressed, anxious, discontented people who struggle to enjoy God's love. And we're going to struggle at limiting other people's ability to enjoy God's love. I think that when we take the striving and the consuming in our culture and we put them together, what it points out is just this lack of generosity in our culture, which is really what James is calling out. Is this lack of generosity amongst those who have power and resources towards those who don't. James concludes this section by showing us that favoritism and avarice, or as I am calling them, striving and consumerism, they not only deform us, but they harm others. Striving and consumerism crowds out our ability to be generous with others. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis speculates that humans are less charitable because we're afraid of being insecure in our basic needs. We're not charitable because we're insecure. We're worried that we're not going to have our basic needs met. That seems like the correct reason that we're not generous to me. That's why our government is attempting to dissuade asylum-seeking people by separating children from parents, which is a national sin. My contention is that all Christians should be aware of their complicity in this. Conservative Christians ought to be more conscious of the plight of the global poor, global poor and how rationalizing our oppressing them under man-made laws in the spirit, is not in the spirit of Christian empathy and charity. But also liberal Christians ought to raise their awareness of the ways that we've harmed the working class in our own nation. And they feel insecure and we're not showing empathy to them that leads them to be afraid of people immigrating to our country. It's wicked, in my opinion, what's happening at our border. The fact that Christians are so desensitized from the gospel and so attached to nation that we would take children and put them in facilities states away from their parents for attempting to immigrate. That's terrifying. I was watching Silas, our six-year-old, play on our porch this week, 
And I was just thinking, he is old enough that if this happened to him, I think it would scar him in severe ways. And that disturbs me. And he's also so young that I don't know how he would have the resilience to survive it. God is clear with his people in scripture that immigrants are to be welcomed and embraced. Hard stop. Leviticus, all the way through. We have issues in our country, though, with border crossings and legality and insecurity in our nation. But I think we as Christians have this higher calling. We need to question how we need to use our privilege that people who are suffering are drawn to. And think about the fact that it may be impractical, but there might be greater ethical considerations for us as kingdom people. That being said, this whole border issue is just a symptom of a greater American disease. Where our empire is really erring is that our consumption, our need to consume things, is squeezing out our margin for charity. The professional class is often unwilling to give up its insatiable desire for consumption and its belief in a meritocracy. And that comes at the expense of the working class in our country and the global poor. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to the homes and the cars and the things we buy because of the labor that we went through to become educated. But don't forget James's previous chapter when he says, every good and perfect gift comes from God. We are nothing that we have. That is un-American and completely Christian. He gives so much to some of us And the reason why is not so that we would just get rid of it or hate it, but it's so that we can be co-conspirators with him in loving this world. Throughout the Bible, God's people synchronize their faith with the people around them. Whatever culture's around them, they start to bend things a little bit closer to that. The Israelites did it with the Canaanites. Ask yourself if you've synchronized with something in our culture. It could be that I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm going to have an insatiable desire for consumption. It could be that I'm a Christian, but I have an insatiable desire for social striving. It could be the middle class abstraction from responsibility. I'm not the privileged. That's someone above me. It could be the myth of the meritocracy. Going back to C.S. Lewis, I think he has a prophetic word for us here. He says in Mere Christianity, I do not believe that one can settle how much one ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities don't pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. Let me give you two practical ways to run your soul through the filter of James 2. Try a spending fast. I'm going to do it this week. Just to diagnose your consumption. See how hard it is for you to not look at consumer goods on the internet or to eat out 
or in the words of Tom and Donna, to treat yourself. (laughs) See if you can eat the food in your home and use the things that you have lying around for a short period. And in stress, don't turn to consumption. This exercise is not to see if you can deprive yourself because that is pointless. That would be so pointless. God never calls us to deprive ourselves. But he calls us to fasting to help us diagnose ways that we're not living with him. The second thing is if you don't have a budget, try making a very rudimentary budget and do it in this order. Figure out your yearly income and then set a goal of generosity out of that. And then budget everything else underneath that. And throughout the year, those things are going to compete. And you'll know where, where the rub is. Friends, brothers and sisters, beloved, we are addicted to consumption and striving in our society. It's not a slight problem. It is a destructive epidemic, and we're totally ignoring it. Last week, I heard a great analogy for this at General Assembly, which is that if you go to a country where bathing is not the norm, it will be a terrible offense to your senses. If you've ever been in a country where people don't bathe regularly, it is so strong for the first hour, and then you don't notice it anymore. Now, this is going to sound a lot like chastising this whole section that I've been talking about. It sounds like James is chastising us. It might sound like I'm chastising you. But what James is implying and not saying is we can imagine actually a society where Christians conspire for sacrifice and generosity. But that only comes from healing in Christ. That's what's implied here. We can live in a society where the professional class is not so addicted to consumption that they can start giving up some of their wages, funneling things away from clothes and rugs and lamps and alcohol and gadgets, and instead literally funnel them to those who work just as hard at less valued jobs. Some of you can literally do that in your work, and I'm one of them. (laughs) If you're not an immigrant, or you don't work a job that's threatened by immigration, you are likely called to radical generosity, my friends. And radical generosity means that it hurts. It means buying less. It means cutting out that diseased part of our souls that wants stuff all the time. But well before we ever try to reorient our relationship with money and resources, we have to reckon with the fact that this is a disease of our flesh. Our addiction to striving and consumption, this epidemic, it's not a little problem. It's not a work that we can undo ourselves by just pointing ourselves in the right direction. It requires surgical, therapeutic power from the great physician and him alone, from Christ. When we shine a bright light on our sins of striving and consumption, we can be healed. But that healing doesn't come from stepping up with better behavior. It comes 
When we come to the one who did not strive for importance, who in fact had it and gave it up, he instead chased all the broken humans, including the privileged of the 21st century in America. We can come to the one who didn't come to consume, but instead said, please, consume me, that we might displace our selfish, broken lifestyles with him. And that's why on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, friends, this is my body, which is broken for you.